Taste the fragrance of heaven, the manna unleavened. He's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's the light of the morning, creation adorning. He's Jesus forever the same. Hello, friends, and welcome again to the Pioneer Broadcast. I'm John Clark, asking you, are you saved? How many times have you heard that question from well-meaning Christians? Are you saved? On today's broadcast and on the ones following, you will find out why the best answer to that question, Are you saved? is no, not yet. Stay with us as we pursue the subject, What Must I Do to Be Saved? He's the fragrance of heaven, the man unleavened. He's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's the light of the morning, creation adorning. He's Jesus forever the same. He's my peace when I'm troubled. As with many biblical words, the word saved can have several different meanings. For example, James said the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And Jesus told a woman that he healed, thy faith hath saved thee, go and sin no more. So the word saved can mean to, to be healed. Another definition for saved is rescued. Jude mentions that after God had saved his people out of Egypt, Afterward, he destroyed them that believed not. So there are two different meanings right there, to be healed or to be rescued. There is another meaning of the word saved, and that means to be kept from committing sin right now by the power of God. This is a present tense uh, use of the word saved. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul said, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Now, if the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish, do we then say that those who do not believe have already died, are already in hell? No, but if they were to die, they would perish. So the correct translation is, for the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Now, just as we don't say that those who reject the gospel have already perished, so we say that those which have, who have believed the gospel are not saved yet, but are in a condition to be saved if Jesus comes for them today. For the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness, but unto us which are being saved... It is the power of God. 
That's the sense of Paul's words. He was not telling the Corinthians that they were already saved any more than he was saying that sinners were already damned. There is a fifth definition of the word saved, and this definition is the one most used by Paul and the other apostles, and it's used by Jesus himself. And this is the equation of salvation with glorification. Most frequently, the writers of the Scriptures referred to salvation as a future hope. Paul thought that resurrection from the grave was the goal of this life. He said in Philippians chapter 3, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found of him not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that righteousness which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Why, Paul? Why do you want to be found pure and righteous in the sight of God when Jesus returns for his faithful children? Why? In verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. See, the first resurrection, the resurrection of life, is what Paul was striving to be a part of. You don't hear him boasting of having gotten saved sometime in the past. He was striving toward a salvation that had not come yet. You remember what he said in Romans 13, 11? He said that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. When we believed is past tense. When we were converted is past tense. Our salvation is future tense. And it is nearer now than it was the day when we believed the gospel. You see how Paul is looking toward the future to being saved? He's looking forward to receiving his salvation at the return of Jesus Christ our Lord. Why did the Apostle Paul never mention the day he got saved? He never used that phrase in his life. Why did Peter never mention about the time he got saved? Why do you see the Apostles never call sinners up to an altar to, quote, get saved? Because they knew judgment was coming. Out of respect for Jesus and his final word, they determined to wait until the Lord would come and let Jesus decide who is saved and who is not, or who will be saved and who is not. Despite any man's position or reputation, despite any man's gifts in the Spirit, if that man does not hear Jesus Christ say to him on the day of judgment, Enter into the joys of the Lord. That man will not be saved. Don't you see that we must be faithful to Christ to be able to stand before Him and be judged worthy of eternal life? 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, With me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, or of any man's judgment. Yea, he said, I judge not mine own self. Well, don't you understand that when you say you are saved, you are judging yourself? And when you, minister, tell someone you're saved, you're judging that man? Paul said, I don't know anything against myself. This is 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4. I don't know anything against myself, yet that does not make me justified with God. He that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore, listen please. 1 Corinthians 4.5 Therefore, child of God, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have his praise from God. Wait until Jesus comes and judges you. And if he judges you to have been faithful and grants you eternal life, you will be saved. If not, you will be damned. You see, it's out of respect for Jesus, our judge, that we do not claim our salvation. Salvation is with Him. To be in His personal presence is salvation. And we are not there yet because He has not come. Look at the, the apostles' attitude toward being saved. For example, in Acts 15, there's a big controversy, the most important controversy over doctrine in the earliest history. Could the Gentiles be saved in the end? Could they be judged worthy of eternal life if they did not keep the ceremonial works of the law of Moses? Peter stood up after they had uh, debated this issue a long time, and he said in verse 11, But we believe... This is an apostle talking who has raised the dead, who has power with God, who's had revelations, visions, healed many sick people. Peter said, We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as those Gentiles. Here is an apostle not claiming to have gotten saved sometime in the past. Here is an apostle saying, We believe that we shall be saved. You see, the, the controversy had to do with salvation, and all of these people at this, at this conference, Paul, Silas, James, John, Peter, all of them understood salvation to be at the end, not the beginning. What started the controversy was some of these brothers from Jerusalem, Jewish brothers, went up to Antioch and began to teach the Gentile believers there that unless they were circumcised the way Moses in the law prescribed, they said, you cannot be saved. They were not saying, you cannot be born again, because they knew they were already born again. They called them brethren. But they said, you must Keep the law of Moses or the ceremonial works of Moses. You must be circumcised. You must keep the feast days. You must uh, bring animal sacrifices to the temple. Or you cannot be saved. Jesus will not take you in on the day of judgment unless you do this and this and this according to the law. 
Even those that Peter was disagreeing with understood that salvation was at the end and not the beginning. But Peter would say, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as those Gentiles. It would take the same thing for us as it does for them and only that, which is to walk in the grace of God. If Peter were living today and saying that, he would receive the same kind of criticism that I have received for saying this truth. He would be rebuked by many Christian ministers today and they would say, I'll have you know I'm already saved and you can't make me doubt it. Where do you see that attitude in the Scriptures? Where do you see that belligerent attitude in, the, in, in Paul and in Peter? They were humble men waiting for Jesus to come back to save them. And it's just in our time that this doctrine of getting saved has come about. It's a 20th century thing. You don't see great men in the past talking about the day they got saved or trying to get sinners to come get saved. They told them about the new birth. They told them about conversion. And then they warned them to walk after the commandments of Christ if they hoped to be saved in the end. But because of this get saved madness that has swept God's people off their feet in the 20th century, because we've all, always heard it, those of us who are alive now, we've always heard people getting saved. And it has sapped the life from God's people. It has stolen the fear of God from our hearts. It has robbed us of so much fellowship. Conversion is not salvation, and we need to know that. Listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3. I mean, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. He was praising God, the Father, and our uh, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. See, that's the new birth. That's conversion. That's what you receive here in this life. And we'll talk more about that in the future. He has begotten us again unto a lively hope. What is the hope? Salvation. He's begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who... For you who are kept by the power of God through faith until salvation or unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see when salvation is going to come? In the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. And don't we rejoice in hope of salvation? Don't we rejoice in hope of the resurrection? Don't we rejoice in the hope of the return of Jesus and the reward that He will bring with Him for all those who have been faithful? Don't we rejoice in hope that the trial of your faith, Peter said, being much more precious than that of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, may be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the important thing. His judgment is the important thing. And Paul and Peter and James and every righteous man then and now are exhorting God's people to live so that they may receive honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus. They are not tempting God's people to judge themselves 
as having already obtained salvation. And Peter said, speaking of Jesus in 1 Peter 1.8, Whom having not seen you love, in whom, that is in Christ, though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving, listen, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. You see, when you finally are saved, when you are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, when you are glorified, you won't need faith anymore. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. But if you receive what you're hoping for, you don't need the faith anymore. You don't need the hope anymore. Faith, hope, and charity. Charity will abide. Faith will be done away with when we receive the end of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. Hope will be done away with when we receive that which we now hope for. That's what Peter said about it. And of course, the master would say this. He warned his disciples and us. When his disciples came and asked him about the end times and the end of the world, Jesus said, first of all, in Matthew 24, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name. But they are false prophets. In verse 24 of chapter 24, he said, False Christ and false prophets shall arise and shall so show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. And then he added this warning. Many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now, have you endured to the end yet? Are you saved? The only godly answer to that is no, not yet, because my Lord has not come bringing his salvation with him. And I will wait for my God. He's the fragrance of heaven, the man unleavened. He's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's the light of morning, creation adorning, is Jesus forever the same. Context, context, context. It's extremely important for our understanding of any biblical scripture the context of that scripture, by whom it was said, to whom it was said, and at what part, at what point in the history of God's dealings with men. Hello, I'm John Clark, and on today's Pioneer broadcast, we're going to be looking in Acts 16 at the context of the question when it was first asked, what must I do to be saved? I think you'll be interested. He's the fragrance of heaven, the man unleavened. He's the song of the songbirds, how sweet.
no one here who could help him at all and no help from heaven would be oh when god calls his children to the land where there cometh no night when we sit down by the father in those shining white garments so bright when we drink from the river and forget all these things that shall pass may i be in that number O oh lord when we enter that city at last oh when god calls his children to the land where there cometh no night when we sit down by the father in those shining white garments so bright when we drink from the river and forget all these things that shall pass may i be in that number O oh lord when we enter that city at last amen may we be in that number because if we miss that call we've missed it all open your bibles with me now to acts chapter 16. acts chapter 16 where we will read the context of the jailer's question what must i do to be saved. In Acts 16, 16, Paul is in the city called Philippi, in the territory of Macedonia. And it came to pass, Luke writes, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. This was not unusual in the ancient world and isn't unusual now to, for someone to be demon-possessed and be able to bring great gain by it. There is such a thing as evil spirits predicting the future or revealing secrets. That's why it's dangerous to allow your children to begin to toy with the occult. Ouija boards, tarot cards... They lead to a deeper involvement with spiritual powers which seem at first to be a joke, but those spirits are deadly. This same young slave girl in Philippi followed Paul and us, Luke says, and cried saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. This was not unusual. If you will read the Gospels, you will find on repeated occasions when Jesus the Lord approached a person who was demon-possessed, the demons would cry out such things as, We know who thou art, the Holy One of God. Art thou come to torment us before the time? So it's not unusual when demon powers are confronted by the anointing of the Holy Ghost that they expose themselves. And this young slave girl was being used by these spirits to say these men, Paul and his company, have come to show the way of salvation. And she did this many days, Acts 16, 18 says. 
But Paul, being grieved because he did not want demons to be giving testimony to his work in God. It's the same reaction Jesus had to it. He commanded the demons to be quiet. And Paul did that in another way because Paul, when he was grieved, turned and said to the spirit that was possessing this young girl, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Now when this demon departed from this young girl, she was no longer able to bring her master's great gain. And when her, ma when her master's saw that the hope of their gains was gone. They caught Paul and Silas as if they were criminals and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers. And they brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. Now, these masters were liars. They were not concerned with the well-being of Rome at all. They did not drag Paul and his friends before the authorities of the city because they were concerned with the city's well-being, though that's what they pretended to be doing. What really was stirring their souls was their knowledge that they were going to lose money now that this young girl had been set free from this demonic spirit. Now, we know it was a demon. Paul knew it was a demon. His friends knew that it was a demon possessing this girl. These men who owned the slave girl probably thought it was a gift from one of their gods. They didn't see that she had been delivered from a demonic power. They saw that there had been a break in the communication between one of the gods and her. Now, unknown to these men, Paul and some of his friends were Roman citizens. They didn't know that, and Paul didn't tell them. But they stirred up a multitude, and the multitude rose up together against them. We're reading in verse 22 of Acts 16. And the magistrates rent off their clothes. They were so upset with their ignorance or by the means of their ignorance, they were upset. If they had known what had happened, they would have been on their knees thanking God. And the magistrates commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Now, it was Roman law that if these prisoners escaped, the jailer would pay with his life. So when he received such a commandment, he threw them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in stocks. He was determined to keep these prisoners. Verse 25 says, At midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors of the prison were open, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing that the prison doors were open, 
he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm. We are all here. And then the jailer called for a light and sprang in the prison and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them, and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And I pause to ask this question. Believing what? What did he believe? He believed now that he would be saved. To understand Paul's answer to the jailer's original question, what must I do to be saved? We have to understand the jailer. He's part of the context. He's the source of the question. What was it going through the jailer's mind when he asked Paul, What must I do to be saved? To understand the jailer's question, we must understand the jailer. First of all, the jailer was not a Jew. He was ignorant of the law and the prophets. He was not from Judea. He was ignorant of Jesus. He was ignorant of the gospel of Jesus. The famous Macedonian call had come to Paul while he was over in Asia Minor and he had traveled in new territory with a new gospel. This jailer and the other inhabitants of Philippi had never heard the gospel. It's important that you take that in. The jailer was ignorant of the gospel of Jesus. In all probability, he had recently made sacrifices to the gods of Rome and or Greece. He had poured his libation drops to the gods before he drank his wine. So, what was the jailer asking when he said, what must I do to be saved? He was not in a theological discussion with Paul over the idea of conversion. He didn't know about conversion. He didn't know about the new birth. To understand his question, we have to understand not only the jailer himself, we have to understand the circumstances in which the question was asked. It was in the middle of the night. He had these two special prisoners in the back part of the prison. He had been commanded to make certain that they did not escape. He knew they were saying something that had to do with the spiritual world. He knew there had been a little girl that was able to predict things and bring her master's gain who no longer was able to. There was something going on in the spiritual world. He knew that. He was not an atheist. He believed in spiritual power. And when at midnight the ground began to shake, 
and the prison walls rumbled, and men began to scream, and rocks began to fall, and the doors of the prison opened. He sensed that it had something to do with those two men in the innermost prison. He sensed that there was a wrath from their God that had come upon that place, and he was in charge of that place. He had sent them to the innermost prison. He had locked their feet fast in, in shackles. Of all the people there, he was most in danger from the wrath of their God. Whatever the name of that God was, he didn't know. The God of the Jews, he may have figured that out. But when he came into the innermost prison, when he commanded a torch to be brought to him, and he ran in and bowed down before Paul and Silas and led them respectfully out of the prison, and when he asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He was not asking, What must I do to be converted? He was asking, What must I do to escape the wrath of your God? The word saved does not mean converted. And it certainly didn't coming from the lips of this jailer. The very concept of a new birth or conversion into the kingdom of God was foreign to him. He was ignorant of it. He was stricken with terror. He was wanting to know how to appease the God of Paul and Silas. To equate saved in this context with conversion is a perversion of the truth. And he was not guilty of confusing salvation with conversion. He didn't enter into that jail to have a discussion with Paul over theological ideas. He was desperate not to suffer the wrath of their God. The jailer is not asking how to be converted. He's asking what he must do to be saved from the wrath of God. And it's only as we understand his question that we can understand Paul's answer. When Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. He, did, he was not saying, Just believe that Jesus is the Lord and then I'll tell you you're saved. It's not in the Bible, but I can just about tell you what the, what the jailer said in response to Paul's words about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. The jailer said, I will, I will. Who is he? Paul's words had to be explained. Salvation had to be explained. The cross of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of the Son of God, had to be explained. The resurrection and His offering Himself to God as a sacrifice for sins of all men. The creation, the sinless life of Jesus, the judgment to come. All of this had to be explained. And it says that in the next verse after Paul said, Believe on Jesus, it tells us, they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. The gospel had to be explained to him. 
what must I do to be saved was asked by a pagan who knew nothing of the way of Christ, but who understood the word saved far better than the typical Christian does today. The word saved is best applied to the coming judgment. With the heart, man believes unto salvation. That's why we should continue believing. He wrote in Hebrews, We are not of them who draw back into destruction, but we are of those who believe to the saving of the soul. What must I do to be saved is a question that I ask God almost daily because God's will must still be done and will still be done by every person who will be saved. What must I do to be saved is asked by every wise man today, converted or not. If you're not converted, you're going to hear this as a response from the Spirit. Repent. If you are converted and you ask God, what do you want me to do, God, so that I can stay ready for Jesus to come back, you'll hear from the Spirit what He wants you to do according to your place in the body. He's the fragrance of heaven The manna unleavened He's the song of the songbirds How sweetly I hope you've enjoyed this program in the series of What Must I Do to Be Saved. If you'd like to receive personal copies of this entire series, write us and ask for information. I hope you'll be with us again next time when we continue this series on What Must I Do to Be Saved? Because what must I do to be saved is the most important question anyone can ask, and Jesus has your answer. So until next time, I'm John Clark. For all of us here at the Pioneer Broadcast, a non-Christian work for the Lord Jesus Christ, saying God bless you until next time. He's the fragrance of heaven, the manna unleavened. He's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's the light of the morning, creation adorning. He's Jesus. And welcome again to the Pioneer Broadcast. I'm your host, John Clark, and we're continuing our study on what must I do to be saved. It's the most important question anyone can ask, and God has given us full and complete answers in the Scriptures. What must you do to be saved? That's what we're going to be letting you know on this program. Stay with us. He's Jesus forever the same. He's the fragrance of heaven.
songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's the light of the morning, creation adorning. He's Jesus forever the same. He's my peace when I'm troubled. Hey, man, it's good to be with you again. You know, God is not a gimmick God. Despite all our attempts to reduce Him to a formula or a system, He is a living God. We need to communicate with Him. We need to understand what He has to say to us, and we need to obey Him. Listen to what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He said, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. I may win Christ. He's talking future tense there. And be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. And then he says in verse 11, If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul had confidence that God was going to save him in the end, but he was not cocky about it. He made his boast in what Christ had done for his life, but he expressed his hope of salvation in very humble terms. And that's what's being robbed from this generation by the present, quote, get saved, mentality. And the truth will take that pride out of our hearts and insert into our spirits the humility of Christ and of those who know him. We're going to continue our study of what must I do to be saved for your benefit today on the Pioneer Broadcast. not see you were there and now lord 
Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. The Lord asked, Come and let us reason together. Paul equated unreasonable men with wicked men. So we want to be able to reason together. And, you know, if we, bring, if we take in a wrong idea about God, we become unreasonable people. Did you know that? Wrong doctrine makes us unreasonable covers our eyes, so to speak, so that we cannot really see what we're seeing in the Scriptures. We can't understand it at all. We want to reason today and come to a reasonable conclusion about the word salvation because the whole doctrine of, quote, getting saved that has developed is unreasonable, is unscriptural, and it is, in fact, ungodly. And as we continue in this series on what must I do to be saved, you'll see more clearly as we go along just how unreasonable it is. So we want to pay close attention to what the word saved and salvation mean in certain verses in the Scriptures. And the word salvation, as with many other words, can have different meanings in different contexts. For example, the word run. Let's just take the, word, the English word run, R-U-N. It can mean to move quickly as opposed to walking. 
It can mean to own or to guide a business, to run a business or to run a store or to run an election if you're a politician. Women can get a run in their hose or you can score a run in baseball. So you see, we have to look at the context to determine exactly what meaning is being used by the speaker or the writer. And that's the way it is with the word saved or salvation or any of the forms that are related to those words in the Bible. There are times when the word salvation means a handful of different things. And I'm going to mention them to you today. First of all, we see in James 5.15 that the prayer of faith shall save the sick. He's talking about a physical healing. And Jesus used the word save that way sometimes when he healed people. Your faith has saved you. He's referring to their bodies being physically healed. On other occasions, uh, using a, a variation of that uh, theme on being, made, being healed, he's talking spiritually when he says, uh, your faith has saved you in Luke's, at the end of Luke chapter 7, he's talking to a woman who has simply been forgiven. She hasn't been healed. She wasn't sick. She was sick in her spirit, but not in her body. And so when Jesus brought her into a right relationship with God under the Old Testament law, he said that she, her faith had saved her or made her whole in an Old Testament sense. Now, he did not mean that she was born again. There was no such thing as being born again before the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came. In Hebrews chapter 9, we are told that a covenant or a testament comes into effect only after the death of the testator. And Jesus is the testator of the New Testament. Without the shedding of his blood, there was no remission of sins. There was forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament, but all the sins in the Old Testament that were forgiven, whether it's Abraham, David, Moses, whoever it was, all of them were forgiven on the condition that Jesus would come and pay the price for their sins. That's why Abraham rejoiced to see his day, to see the day when Jesus would come to earth and pay the price for his sin. There was forgiveness under the Old Testament. There was mercy, as we see many times in the scriptures. But there was no such thing as sin being taken away or sin being washed away from our souls or blotted out until Jesus came and paid the price for it. In Romans 3, Hebrews 9, we're both, in both places we're told that G the sacrifice of Christ paid the price for sins that were past. But those in the Old Testament who lived by faith obeyed God and received mercy for their sins on the condition that Jesus was coming. And when Jesus came and paid the price, all the sins that were confessed and forgiven in the Old Testament were blotted out from God's book. And when Jesus paid the price for you, the door was open for your sins to be blotted out if you'll take advantage of it. God help us do just that. So we have already two different definitions for the word saved. To be healed physically, or in the Old Testament sense, to be brought into a right standing with God. Here is another uh, example of salvation having, or saved, having a different twist to it. You remember when Peter began to sink in the water on the Sea of Galilee, when he was walking toward Jesus on the water. In that stormy sea, his faith began to fail, and he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. He's talking about saving Peter was crying out for salvation from drowning. There was nothing spiritual about his cry, Lord, save me. 
He was not saying, let me be born again. He was saying, I'm, I'm, I'm about to die here. Help me. And Jesus did save Peter from drowning that night and helped him back into the boat. And Jude chapter 5, uh, he talks about salvation as a rescue from a terrible physical plight when he said that the Lord saved his people out of Egypt. Now he goes on to say that God afterward destroyed from among those same people those who refused to believe and obey him. And we might ask this question, if Peter is saved from drowning on that stormy night on the Sea of Galilee, is it possible for him to drown the next night? Of course it is. So just as God saved his people out of Egypt, he rescued them out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt. Later they fell into the slavery of sin. They were, or they had been saved out of bondage, yes. But what about now? Peter was saved from drowning, but he had to be careful the rest of his life, lest he drown on a different occasion. So there are three now. You have three definitions of the word saved. Physical healing, being brought into a right relationship with God under the Old, Test under the Old Testament, and third, to be rescued from a dangerous physical situation. There is a fourth definition of salvation, use of the word saved, in the New Testament that has to do with our spirits. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18, Paul says this, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Now, in referring to those that perish, it is obvious that Paul is not describing those who are in hell. He's describing those on earth who are foolish and are going to perish unless they change. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Let me assure you that no one in hell thinks the gospel is foolishness now. They all know that the gospel of Christ is not foolishness. They wish they had heard it. They wish they had believed it when they heard it. So when Paul is describing them that perish, he's describing those who are in a condition to perish because they are esteeming the gospel to be foolishness. Likewise, when he mentions those that are saved, he's not describing those in glory, in paradise, those who are with the Lord now. He's describing those on the earth who are on their way to salvation, who are in a condition to be saved if they were to die or if Jesus comes back today. For well, the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. But unto us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, the gospel is the power of God that's saving us. Peter says it this way. He describes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, an inheritance that's laid up for us in heaven. And listen to how he says it. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. But that's not the end of the sentence, friends. There's a comma after the word you, and there is a qualification after that. This inheritance, which is incorruptible, undefiled, and is not fading away, is reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith 
until salvation or unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you see how Peter is looking forward to salvation here? You see how that salvation is happening now if you are being kept by the power of God. Now the question is, kept from what right now? What is it that you are being kept from by the power of God in your soul? You're being kept from sin. If you are not being kept from sin, you are not being saved. That's not how the scriptures talk about it. And to those of you who have been taught to claim that you're saved by grace, but it's irrelevant how you live, let me remind you of something in Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2 verse 11, this is what we find. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, comma, He's going to tell us what, how to recognize the grace that brings salvation now. If you are saved by grace, this is that grace and what it's doing. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. If you are not being taught and guided by the Holy Ghost to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly right now in this present world, you are not being kept by the power of God and that inheritance is not being laid up for you and you are not being saved by grace. The grace that saves teaches us how to live. And if you are not learning how to live, if you are not being guided in holiness by the power of God, if you are not being kept from sin, you are not being saved by grace. In John chapter 5, Jesus described two resurrections. The first was the resurrection unto life for those who obeyed God, for those, in Jesus' words, who have done good. The second resurrection was the resurrection unto damnation for those who, as Jesus said, have done evil. Are you doing evil or are you doing good in God's sight? If you're doing good in God's sight, you will be saved in the end and you are being saved now by His power. If you are doing evil, you are not being saved by grace. You are being lost through unbelief and disobedience. That's the simplicity of the gospel. It never gets any more complicated than that. If you obey, you'll be saved. If you disobey, you'll be lost. Now, the main use of the word salvation and saved in the New Testament is a future use. For example, Paul said in Romans 13, 11, our salvation is nearer than when we believed. You do not receive salvation when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive the hope of salvation, which hope the world is without. When you were in the world, Paul said, you were without God and without hope in the world. But Christ in you is the hope of glory. And we wear this hope of salvation as a helmet on our head. So mainly what we find in the New Testament are references by the apostles of Jesus Christ and even by Jesus himself, to salvation being 
the hope of the believer. This is why Peter said in Acts 15, 11, that we Jews who believe, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as those Gentiles. Peter, you see, was looking forward to his salvation through the grace of God. He was expecting God to save him from the way he used to live right now. To keep him from committing sins against God and against the brothers in the Lord so that he would be found worthy to walk with Christ in the end. Now I have a question. Who is it? Who is it who has perverted this right understanding of how salvation is used in the Scriptures? Who is it who has perverted the right ways of God so that now even God's own people claim to already have what they ought to be working to possess, working to attain to? Where is the attitude now that Paul expressed, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead? Jesus said, strive to enter in. For many shall strive to enter and will not be able. Who is it then that says there is nothing you can do? Where did that come from? Jesus said, pray to be found worthy to escape those things that will befall this world. Who is it then that says you're bound to sin every day and we never can really be worthy? Jesus said, He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Who is it then that says, He who repeats Romans 10, 9 and 10 after me shall be saved? He's the fragrance of so you see what it all amounts to is this. In order for you to obtain the salvation that Jesus has promised you, you must first be rescued are saved out of the dangerous situation of living in sin. And we must also walk in the obedient spirit that Jesus did. We must walk without sin. We must be saved from sin now by the power of the Spirit of God. And then we'll be prepared for the coming of the Lord. And as we continue in our series on what must I do to be saved, you'll see ever more clearly exactly how this all fits together in the scriptures i hope you've i hope you've been benefited by our survey of how salvation is used in the scriptures there is more to come in the coming programs we love communicating with god's children god's people are the most precious people on the face of this earth we love them and we're here to do you good until next time, I'm John Clark for all of us here at the Pioneer Broadcast, praying for you, wishing you the best, and reminding you that this is a non-Christian work for the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. Forever the same He's the fragrance of heaven The manna unleavened He's the song of 
songbirds how sweetly they sing He's the light of the morning Creation adorning He's Jesus forever the same His name is Jesus forever